230 years ago, the founders of our country realized we had left some important things out of our Constitution. The first 10 amendments, what we call the Bill of Rights, were added. And over the years, other amendments were added to remedy serious omissions. Slavery was abolished. The right of every citizen to fair treatment under the law was acknowledged. And the fact that women should have always had the right to vote was finally recognized. But still, something was missing. As industries grew, they began to plunder our environment for profit. Drilling, mining, and smelting turned daylight to night. Rivers became polluted, air became polluted, and the land itself became polluted. We took our natural environment for granted, not realizing our right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment needed to be protected as well. But now we know. This is the moment for a Green Amendment in every state. And this is Green Street. Hello and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, public health and medical professionals, authors, engineers, activists, reporters, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is really going on around you, how it affects your health and safety, and how you can protect your family in this increasingly toxic world. Today on Green Street, we're delighted to have one of the country's most effective environmental advocates on our show. Maya Van Rossum is an attorney, a naturalist, and a fierce, very fierce defender of our natural world. She and her team have discovered and developed a plan to allow every state to protect its own natural environment for the benefit of its citizens, and do so in a way that is not only 100% legal, but really, really smart. So please stick around to hear from Maya Van Rossum, coming right up after Patty and the headlines from the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? As always, I had lots to choose from, and here are three good articles for this week. The first one is New California Law Bans Recycling Symbols on Things That Aren't Recyclable. Um, this was adapted from a New York Times article, which was written by Hiroko Tabuchi and Winston Choi Chagrin. The familiar chasing arrows recycling symbol may not actually mean a product is recyclable. In California and many other states, it's legal for a product to carry the recycling symbol, even if it's not, resulting in countless tons of non-recyclable garbage being thrown into recycling bins each year, choking our recycling systems. California State Senator Ben Allen, who is sponsoring the bill, says, a lot of people are carefully putting materials into the recycling bins that have the recycling symbols on them, assuming that they are going to be recycled. Actually, they're going straight to the landfill. Recently, the California legislature passed a bill that would ban companies from using the arrow symbol unless they can prove the material is in fact recycled in most California communities and is used to make new products. The legislation, which is expected to be signed into law by Governor Newsom, is part of a growing effort in states across the country to tighten up regulations on what can be labeled recyclable. Materials made from plastic seem to be the worst offenders. According to the EPA, less than 10% of plastic is actually recycled. The remainder goes into landfills or find its way into rivers and streams and eventually into the oceans. Some types of plastics, like resins used for bottled water or soda, are more easily recycled, but even here, their record is dismal. 
Some of the most common forms of non-recyclable trash that are hampering legitimate recycling operations are snack pouches, plastic film, grocery bags, and packing materials. Plastic bags in particular can't be recycled in most curbside recycling programs and are well known to gum up recycling machines. Maine and Oregon passed laws overhauling their state's recycling systems by requiring corporations to pay for the cost of recycling their packaging. In Oregon, the law included plans to establish a task force that would evaluate misleading or confusing claims related to recycling. Legislation is pending in New York that would, among other things, ban products from displaying misleading claims. In the past year, a number of environmental organizations have filed lawsuits seeking to combat misleading claims of recyclability by major corporations. Environmental groups have also criticized plans by the oil and gas industry to expand its production of petrochemicals, which are the main building blocks of plastic because the process is highly polluting and creates, of course, new demand for fossil fuels. Not surprisingly, the plastics and packaging industry opposed the bill, saying it would create more confusion for consumers, not less. According to the groups, California should wait for Washington to come up with national labeling standards, which could take many years. The bill would make it a crime for corporations to use the Chasing Arrows recycling symbol on any product or packaging that hasn't met the state's recycling criteria. Products would be considered recyclable if the state's recycling department determined they have a viable end market and meet certain design criteria, including not using toxic chemicals. Well, so we have to go to source reduction, right? Whether it's source reduction on mosquitoes or source reduction on, on pesticides, whatever, this is another issue. We can't just keep putting Band-Aids on this. We have got to stop producing plastic, packaging, plastic, plastic, plastic. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to go to, you know, reusable materials. That's it. Not many other ways to get around this issue. I mean, it's really, it's just going to continue to be a problem. Industry is going to continue to push at the limits of the law, try to get away with what they can. But, yeah. the, but the idea that they're consciously putting the recycled symbol on products that they know can't be recycled is, how, uh, how did that yeah. slip through? <laughs> how did we let that slip through? No, I say let it slip through. That the was fine, clearly... The fine print. That was clearly okay. fine print. What else you got? Okay, so let's talk about this year's ozone layer, okay, being a hole bigger than Antarctica, okay? Larger than usual is the name of this article that originally came from The Guardian. It was written by Helena Horton. The hole in the ozone layer that develops each year is larger than usual this year, bigger than Antarctica. The Copernicus Atmosphere Monitoring Service has reported that this year's hole is growing quickly and is larger than 75% of ozone holes at this stage in the season since 1979. Ozone exists about 7 to 25 miles above the Earth's surface in the stratosphere and acts like a sunscreen for the planet shielding it from ultraviolet radiation. Every year, a hole forms during the late winter of the Southern Hemisphere as the sun causes ozone-depleting reactions, which involve chemically active forms of chlorine and bromine emitted from human-made gases called CFCs, which were first developed in the 1930s for use in refrigeration systems and as propellants in aerosol spray cans. CFCs have been banned in 197 countries around the world. 
And since the ban on so-called halocarbons, the ozone layer has shown signs of recovery. But it is a slow process, and it will take until the 2060s or 70s for a complete phasing out of the depleting substances. During recent years with normal weather conditions, the ozone hole has typically grown to a maximum of 8 million square miles. The Antarctic ozone hole usually reaches its peak between mid-September and mid-October, when temperatures start to rise high up in the stratosphere in late southern hemisphere spring, ozone depletion slows, the polar vortex weakens, and finally breaks down, and by December, ozone levels return to normal. Did you know that about the hole in the ozone layer? That no. it's only actually there for a, a certain period of time every year. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, and then it actually closes up again. I thought we had fixed this problem. I thought the the banning of CFCs was one of the great environmental it was you know wins of the past you know fifty yes, years. Yes, but but here is the problem. Whenever we try to fix things like that, we always say that there's a period where we're phasing them out. Yeah. To get rid of this stuff. Well, they have to make their profit. Well, okay. That's that one. All right. I thought that was interesting. I, I was really not aware. I thought once we had a hole in the ozone layer that it was it was just there yeah. all the time. Yeah. No. Interesting. Okay. What else you got? My third article, which I find fascinating and which ties in with our show today, is Global Action on Harmful PFAS Chemicals is Long Overdue. New study. And it was written by Christina Marusic and published in Environmental Health News. The scientific community has known for decades that a group of widely used chemicals is causing health harms across the globe, but effective policies aimed at curbing those impacts lag far behind the research, according to a new study. The class of chemicals known as PFAS, perfluoroalkyl and perfluoroalkyl substances, includes more than 5,000 individual chemicals with similar properties. PFAS or PFAS don't readily break down once they're in the environment, so they can accumulate in animal and human tissues, earning them the nickname Forever Chemicals. In addition to being detected in food and takeout wrappers and boxes, PFAS are used in many kinds of nonstick and waterproof coatings. The chemicals have been detected in indoor air and at troubling levels in drinking water supplies throughout the U.S. and around the globe. Exposure is linked to health effects including testicular and kidney cancers, decreased birth weights, thyroid disease, decreased sperm quality, high cholesterol, pregnancy-induced hypertension, asthma, and ulcerative colitis. The study involved researchers from the U.S., Sweden, Switzerland, Belgium, Norway, the Czech Republic, and Denmark. The researchers are calling for global changes to the way PFAS are manufactured and regulated. The researchers' suggestions for new paths forward include taking a systematic inventory of all PFAS industries to identify current and former sites of emissions on a global scale, requiring retailers to know and publicly share where PFAS are present in their supply chains, limiting future use of PFAS to only essential uses, requiring manufacturers of PFAS to be financially responsible for their cleanup, and finally, regulating the chemicals as a class rather than attempting to tackle all 5,000 plus of them one by one. The researchers also investigated who should pay for the cost of PFAS contamination, noting that individuals who get sick as a result of contamination often bear the financial burdens of those impacts, along with local health systems. 
while local governments and water authorities often bear the cost of cleaning up the water contamination. They note that the plants manufacturing these chemicals are often in low-income communities and communities of color, which often have the highest health costs of PFAS exposure, a clear example of environmental injustice. These PFAS chemicals, you know, we come across them in story after story, week after week here on Green Street. Yeah, it's, 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 getting, it's getting a lot of attention, and rightly so, because this is one of these forever chemicals. I don't and think, yeah. Sorry. Not a single chemical. It's a class. Right. But they said over 5,000 chemicals belong in this class. I don't think the American public has really yet made the association, though, between exposure to these chemicals and the diseases well, those, that the they are capable problems. of causing. Oh, absolutely. And they're very common, these, prob- these health problems that people are, are um, you know, are suffering from exposure to it. I suppose, very common. I suppose part of the problem is PFAS chemicals are not the only things that cause you know, the kinds of disease Well, it's, just, uh, it's the same thing influence. with everything. Yeah. It's the same thing with everything. So you can't tie it to this particular well, thing. This is, you, you know, know, you put, your, fing- coding, you put your finger right on it. There's really no way to say my cancer, my thyroid disease, my high cholesterol, why my asthma, my ulcerative colitis is from my exposure to all of these fast food packages that I buy every single day at lunchtime at the local deli. You know, I go order a salad or I get something from the cold bar, the cold buffet or whatever, and I put it in this thing, okay? And it's it's coated with PFAS. The inside of it is coated so that it, it doesn't get greasy on the outside. The grease doesn't go through and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't leak, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so you're eating out of it every single day. Every mm. single day you're eating out of this and, the, and that, that chemical transfers from the container that you're using, this you know, this, uh, this food container to the food. Yeah, and no way to absolutely draw that, draw that straight that, line that's with right. any degree of certainty. So, nope. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. lot of guests on Green Street over the years, but not many can match the passion, the energy, the knowledge, and the positive can-do spirit of our guest today. Her official title is Delaware Riverkeeper, the head of the nonprofit organization that works throughout the four states that comprise the Delaware River watershed, including Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and New York. The organization works at the federal level on the issues, actions, regulations, legislation, policies, programs, and decisions that impact the health of the entire watershed. Her unofficial title is Mama Bear Protecting the Environment She Loves and Has Sworn to Protect. Maya Van Rossum is one of the most outspoken, most energetic, most enthusiastic, and most positive environmental advocates we've ever come across in our 20 years of working to keep chemicals out of our food, air, and water. And she's got an idea to help all of us in every state across the country do something that can really help protect the natural resources we depend on for generations to come. Pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. Maya Van Rossum is the brains and energy behind the idea of a green amendment in every state, and she's determined to get it done with your help. Here's our interview with Maya Van Rossum. 
So, well, first off, I'm really honored to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these really important subjects. Um, my, my Green Amendment movement is, is an outgrowth of a negative place and a positive place um, while doing my um, work as an environmental activist and attorney and serving as the Delaware Riverkeeper for the last 27 years. Throughout all of my years of doing environmental activism, you know, it is always very hard to experience how our current system of environmental protection laws really fundamentally fails us because it is focused on accepting and then permitting pollution and environmental degradation rather really than being focused on preventing harm first. And so I like all environmental advocates have had to contend with that and experience that and environmental attorneys as well. But fast forward, you know, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we have been experiencing the ravages of drilling and fracking. While we had kept it out of the Delaware River watershed, you know, fracking anywhere harms all of us everywhere, and of course increases the pressure for more and more fracking. So while we were contending with this, advocating against fracking, which really came to Pennsylvania around the mid 2000s, in 2012, a very pro-fracking Pennsylvania legislature decided that they wanted to find a way to make it even easier for fracking to advance in the state. And they passed a very pro-fracking law called Act 13. Now, I, as the Delaware Riverkeeper, and we at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, knew that we had to find a way to defeat this law before it even started. Because while fracking was already inflicting so much damage in the Commonwealth, it was about to get exponentially worse for our environments and for our communities. The problem is when you have a law passed by your legislature and signed by your governor, there aren't too many ways to defeat it, right? Because it's within the bounds of the law. But we realized that in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we had a long ignored constitutional environmental rights amendment in the Bill of Rights section of the Pennsylvania Constitution. It had been passed decades before, but declared by the courts to be just a statement of policy but we thought that maybe we were in a moment in time contending with a law that was such a dramatic overreach that maybe we could overturn that 42 years of bad precedent. Um, and so we challenged this law, claiming that it would be an unconstitutional violation of the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania. And long story short, we were victorious. We were also joined by seven towns in this case, but the argument that we brought to the table was this environmental rights claim. And in December of 2013, we got an amazing victory where the provisions of Act 13 that we were challenging were in fact declared to be unconstitutional because they violated that environmental rights amendment. And so we stopped that law and we stopped all of the fracking that it would allow before any of it even started. And it was in the wake of that victory, you know, when I was thinking about the power of what we had accomplished and raising up environmental rights and defeating that law. And I started to look at every constitution across the nation and found that there was only one other state, Montana, which gave this same highest constitutional standing to the, the right to a clean and healthy environment. And I decided it was time to change that. So I wrote my book, The Green Amendment. I started the Green Amendments for the Generations Movement. And I started traveling around the nation trying to inspire what I have defined to be green amendments in every state across the nation. Because a green amendment isn't just any environmental language in the Constitution. It, ha it, 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 um, 
It requires fulfilling certain criteria that really raise environmental rights up to that highest level. So I love to hear this. This is just like it's a monumental feat that you are actually able to accomplish there in Pennsylvania. Doug and I spent quite a bit of time in Pennsylvania during those early fracking years, um, you know, talking to people who were being impacted in communities that were close by to those fracking operations. But if you look at what you were leaning on, which was the which was this section in the Bill of Rights, all it was asking for was the right for every Pennsylvania citizen to clean water, clean air, and a healthy environment. Oh, okay. These are life-giving resources, right? We all need that. And this is having a huge impact on, you know, especially on on communities of color and underserved communities where all of these, um, you know, these really egregious uh, industries are polluting. And so, how do you get down to that the, to that conversation when you are pushing this with um, with legislators and trying to find allies, um, you know, within these within these state governments? So the interesting thing is whether you're talking about um, private individuals or you're talking about government officials, people for the most part really believe that they that they do have a right to clean water and clean air and to a healthy environment and that our laws are structured in order to advance that kind of protection. But when you really talk with them and just talk about the fact that the right to free speech, to freedom of religion, private property rights, that gun rights are given highest protection in the Bill of Rights section of the of the Constitution, but that the basic fundamental right to clean water and clean air isn't there. It's kind of like an, an instant eye-opening recognition because people don't think about the environment in those terms. And of course they don't because they've never been spoken to about the environment and environmental rights in those terms. But when you point it out, it is pretty eye-opening. And then when you talk with them about how really the laws are focused on permitting pollution, not preventing it. People can see that because we all experience that. And certainly government officials experience that. So that's sort of the the starting place. And then really expressing how powerful from not just a legal perspective, but from a hearts and minds perspective, it is to raise up these basic rights to a clean and healthy environment to that Bill of Rights level, it just really, it strikes people. It strikes them in their hearts. It strikes them in their minds. And they can start to pretty quickly see that there is something wrong with the Constitution when it protects certain kinds of basic rights, but not the right to a clean and healthy environment. So that's really where I start the conversation. Um, and I do, as you so, so um powerfully did also very, very quickly point to the environmental justice values of a constitutional Green Amendment, because we all know, we all can see and experience how continually communities of color, low-income communities, indigenous communities are consistently targeted for highly polluting industrial operations and environmentally degrading activities. So they are just hit time and time and time again under the auspices of protecting everybody else. 
Well, if we all have the same constitutional right to a clean and healthy environment um, and government officials are constitutionally bound to protect those rights for the benefit of all people equitably, we have now changed the playing field entirely when it comes to environmental justice. So for many legislators, not all, but for many legislators, that is also a really powerful recognition that really resonates and becomes something that very quickly draws them to this powerful idea. It's so interesting uh, that we don't realize what's not in the Constitution, right? We don't realize the rights that are not protected. And I think it's a brilliant idea to address this from the standpoint of, of what's not protected and also to give a legal basis to challenge. I mean, essentially what you're doing is you're, you're allowing a challenge of everything that violates or that threatens our clean water, our clean air. I mean, it's a tremendous platform from which legally to base uh, challenges to these laws and these policies of various government institutions. It really is. And, you know, again, it really, it starts at in the advocacy phase because the the, the ideal outcome of a Green Amendment is that we have our government officials doing the right thing from the get-go when it comes to environmental mm -hmm. protection. Mm -hmm. So passing protective laws and regulations, you know, issuing permits that are protective, not issuing permits that are harmful. But you are right. When our government officials get it wrong, right, when they fail us and they do allow so much pollution and degradation that it is harming the lives of the people of the state, it is really incredibly important that we have this ability to hold them accountable for engaging in activities and decisions that really are infringing on these basic, necessary fundamentals of a clean and healthy and safe environment and life. So you said there was already a, a, a Pennsylvania law, right? There was there was a law on the books that, that some smart person found. How different is that law from the uh, amendment that you're suggesting that other states adopt? So I really worked to make sure that we were learning the lessons from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Now, I want to begin by saying Senator Franklin Curry, who originally conceived of this idea for Pennsylvania, really put together some of the most powerful language. And it recognizes the individual rights of all people to pure water and clean air and a healthy environment. It recognized, and it also recognizes the duty of all government officials to protect the natural resources of the state for the benefit of all people, including future generations. And they do that by using trust law, not the public trust doctrine, which can be much more limited in the environmental context. But if you think about how powerfully um, a money trust is protected, right? Because those, mm. the trustee has really clear responsibilities to protect the money for the benefit of the people. Well, we're now using that powerful trust law with the, the, the trust being the natural resources in any way, bring into play really powerful concepts. So this idea of individual rights, government responsibility, protecting future generations, right? Because they have to protect the natural resources um, for present and future generations and, and ha ensuring that the language applies to all levels of government from the local town council to the state legislators, to the governors and all the, the governor's office and all the regulators in between. These are really 
powerful elements, every single one of them. So when I go into a state to try to inspire the, the, the pursuit and passage of a green amendment, I recommend language that includes all of these elements, um, plus more. But the, the really one thing that I'm very clear about up front is, you know, every state has a different personality. Every state wants to emphasize different kinds of things. And so I make sure that I work with the community to craft language that has all of these key elements but suits their personality and the priorities of that state, right? For some, the climate crisis, you know, is playing out in wildfires. For others, you know, there are other issues, you know, having to do with fracking or industrial operations. And so just figuring out how all of this comes into play. The other thing is, is in Pennsylvania, there are there's some, some gaps, I think, that we need to learn from. For example, Pennsylvania's Green Amendment language doesn't explicitly acknowledge the climate. Now, there's a very powerful argument that the climate gets addressed clearly through the language that is on the books, but I think it's really important to be direct and clear and express about that. And so I recommend that Green Amendment language expressly speaks to the issue of the right to a stable climate. So there are lots of different elements, but again, try to learn, take the best parts of Pennsylvania um, and, and encourage that be included everywhere else. Learn some of the lessons from some of the gaps that exist in Pennsylvania and try to address that everywhere else. But be really clear that we need to make sure that the language that advances in every state suits the personality of that state. And so at this point in the 13 states where I've inspired a Green Amendment proposal, Every single state has language that's a little bit different. You're listening to Green Street, the Environmental Health Show with Doug and Patty Wood. Our guest today, Maya Van Rossum, the Delaware Riverkeeper and the driving force behind the idea of a green amendment in every state. So let me just step back a little bit and look at the bigger picture. It's not just the personalities of those states, but it's also the economies of those states. What do you do in these states where their entire economy is based on fossil fuel industries? So such a great observation, right? And that certainly can raise the hurdle um, when it comes to getting actual passage of a Green Amendment. Um, and, and when I say passage, I mean that it goes through the process necessary to get that Green Amendment ultimately before the people. Because when we're talking about constitutional amendments, it's ultimately on the people to decide um, how a constitution is or is not amended, right? Because the constitution fundamentally is, the, is about the people telling their government officials what is acceptable when it comes to governing over them. Mm-hmm. One of the states that is, you know, where we have some of the most passionate, powerful Green Amendment activity advancing is exactly the kind of state you're talking about, New Mexico. And in fact, in New Mexico, not only is the fossil fuel industry just running rampant um, and 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 growing because of the Permian Basin, but they actually um, the education system in New Mexico is dependent upon fossil fuel income. So that linkage between education and fossil fuels really um, has an impact on the whole conversation about a green amendment. Um, And so we have to contend with that um, and just really talk about that this at at its core, um, a green amendment is not about stopping any industry. Um, It is about protecting the people 
right? It's about protecting the environment. It's about making sure that when we do allow economic development in a state, it happens in a way that is protective of the environment and the people. Now, there are some industrial operations where you can change the way they operate and make them more protective of the environment. And frankly, there are other industrial operations where you can't make it safe, right? Um, You know, there is no way to make fracking safe for the environment, for the people, Mm. or for the climate. Um, And so certainly the Green Amendment comes into play on all of those discussions, but it's really important when we're having the conversation about whether or not this is a, a, a good idea for a state, a meaningful idea for a state, We have to bring it back to the fact that we are talking about the people, their health, their safety, their security, whether or not our children and our children's children have a planet to live on that is livable. And so that is part of, you know, making sure the conversation stays oriented on what is right for the people and offering that clarity that it plays out in different ways for every different industry and and element of economic development. But at its core, this isn't about speaking to one industry or another. This is about ensuring that everything we do is done in a way that's environmentally protective. Hmm. I noticed that you said that this is self-executing. I'm curious to know what's self-executing about this and how do you make that happen? So that is that is I'm so glad that you brought that up because that is amongst the basic fundamentals a must have of a green amendment. It has to be in the bill of rights section of the constitution. It has to talk about the environmental rights of all people, right? It has to talk about the government's obligation and apply to all government officials. And it has to be self-executing, meaning that the language has legal life just standing on its own as soon as it gets added to the books. So you aren't dependent just on legislation and regulation for it to have legal applicability. In other words, if somebody complies with the the laws on the books about water protection, they have necessarily complied with the Constitution because the Constitution has its own legal life and standing on its own. In fact, the Constitution is above the laws. So the laws are an effort to implement the Constitution. But if, for example, there is a gap in the law, like when it comes to PFAS contamination, one of the reasons that man-made family of toxic chemicals is in people's drinking water supplies, in our environment, in people's bodies, is because for so long it wasn't regulated at all by legislation or regulation. Mm. There was nothing to help regulators or community members to stop its use and its proliferation in a way that got into the environment. When you have a self-executing constitutional environmental right, the right to clean water has its own legal life and standing. So even if there's no law that implements the right to clean water in a certain context, like in the context of PFAS, legislators, regulators, or the public could have relied on the constitutional right, the constitutional duty to protect Mm -hmm. clean water as the basis for preventing the proliferation of PFAS into the environment, maybe preventing its use altogether, or ensuring its use happened only in a way that did not get into the environment, or down the line, when it already was in the environment, 
that right to clean water could have been used to spur government action Mm -hmm. to clean it up and prevent its ongoing use sooner before so many people and so many environments were harmed, right? So hopefully that example helps. It's like the idea that the right, the language in the constitution, yes, it's implemented through legislation and regulation. And those are a means, those are mechanisms for helping to define what the right means, what the right means and how to how to implement it in practice. But the constitution does also have its own legal life. And so when the laws are failing us, when they're allowing for environmental racism, when there's gaps in the laws, when the law by its own terms clearly allows for so much pollution and degradation that it is rising to that unconstitutional level, people can turn directly to the Constitution for the protection that they need. Okay, so let me go back to PFAS. Okay, so there are over 3,000 chemicals in that class, in the PFAS class of chemicals. And we are looking at them one at a time. PFOA, PFOS, um, we've got the FDA involved, we've got the EPA involved, and they're just looking at one at a time. And the industry is pushing back incredibly hard on regulating any of these chemicals. And you're saying that if this becomes, and, and that's that's number one question, how do you how do you overcome this incredible, you know, effort that has to be made here to get all those PFAS chemicals out of consumer products and out of firefighting foam and blah, 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 blah. That's part one. Part two of this question is, have you been working in Washington? Or do you think that it's more um, valuable and actually an easier way to get this this work that you're doing accomplished um, by going state by state. So when it comes to, to per and polyfluoral alkyl chemicals, um, PFAS, PFAS, PFOA, PFNA, like you said, like there's a whole bunch of them. Um, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network has been l- working at the local level, the state level, and the federal level, and sort of working within the structure of the existing law. So I just want to make that clear, right? So you know, we, we, we aren't going all in on green amendments because things are happening now. And there are there are there are opportunities under the current system that we want to make sure we take advantage of while we're fighting for green amendments everywhere to be value added. The passage of a green amendment, whether you're talking about PFAS or any other environmental harm, will not be an instant panacea, but it will ensure the most powerful legal tool we have in this nation gets to be used for environmental protection in whatever context we're talking about. So I just want to put that out there. Um, The other thing, though, I just want to say that when it comes to the environment, all aspects of the environment, At the state level, there's an incredible level of power. So most often, the federal government is sort of setting the floor, the minimum level of protection that must happen. But states are given authority to be more protective, to do a better job. And that's where a green amendment that's going into the state constitution can really kick in. It helps give state government more power, more authority to do that better job. Now, yes, there are certain circumstances where the federal government may preempt the state government. For example, in many aspects of interstate fracked gas pipeline projects. Um, so, you know, we do have those those areas, but for the most part, states have a lot of power. So by going state by state by state, passing green amendments, we are giving all state government officials this highest power to address 
all aspects of environmental protection, right, where things are coming up short. PFAS is one example. And I use that example to make clear that when there's a gap in the law, right, the Constitution can help fill the gap. But it also strengthens how we interpret and apply existing laws on the books. But a state green amendment applies to state government officials. Um, And so that is why it does not apply to EPA or the Congress or the president. So that is why we need to also eventually seek and secure the passage of a federal green amendment. So we Mm. get at those federal government officials, but we can't hop right there because we haven't laid the foundation. We haven't done the groundwork necessary to be successful. And we could just see that on its face. So In order to get a federal green amendment, we have to go across the nation and mobilize and educate and organize people. And to me, strategically, what better way to do that than go state by state by state, getting people so organized and educated that they get a state level green amendment that can kick in right away to help better address things environmentally at the state level. And then at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future, we will hit a tipping point where it will become clear that we now have brought and we've created enough of a foundation nationwide that we can really start seriously putting forth our strategy for a federal green amendment. And if we had a federal green amendment, then we would be able to use that, you know, in those places and those spaces where federal government can, should be, is involved in environmental protection. It's when we have both of them that will have the most powerful play. So there are sort of two answers to your question. Yes, Delaware Riverkeeper Network is very active at all levels right now. Um, But in terms of the green amendment movement, Right. That is something that will help in ad all advocacy, whether we're talking about PFAS or anything when where the environment is significantly implicated and in that environmental justice arena. And then as we get those constitutional green amendments passed, we will now have that added most powerful tool to add to all of those efforts and strengthen them and help make us more successful. Right. So, you know, as I do a lot of speaking, I'm speaking to a lot of groups, some of whom are educated and enlightened on these issues and some of who are not. But I think that there is still a large portion of our population that thinks environmental rights has nothing to do with their own health. They don't really understand that environmental rights, a clean and healthy environment is really is really important. It's it's a right to live a healthy life because those things in the environment that we're talking about, water and air, have everything to do with whether or not we're healthy. There's a disconnect between preserving and, and keeping our environment clean or actually going in and remediating the environment that has, um, you know, that has been polluted because we need a healthy environment to live a healthy life. So you, you are very right. And that's really part of the education process. So for those people to whom that's not intuitive, we need to educate them. Just like for all those people who thought fracking was fine. And when we educated them to realize that, no, this has devastating consequences for every aspect of your lives, they became informed, right? They became active. And we were able to keep fracking out of our watershed, out of New York State, and out of some other places, right? Um, So that is part of the education process. But that being said, I do think at its core, right, people do understand that they need clean water and clean air to live 
to live, period, but to live a healthy life. And so while we may need to talk about aspects of pollution and degradation and how much is okay and how does that get defined and deal with all of those issues, I think at its core, when you say to people, you don't actually have a right to a clean, healthy glass of water out of your faucet or to a breath of air that won't make you fall down with a heart attack or an asthma attack. That is disturbing to people and they get it. So we have a good starting point because people do you know, intuitively understand that, but you are right. There is a lot more education to really talk about how far that goes, particularly in the climate context. Well, exactly. And, you know, there's also a lot of greenwashing going on. I mean, we were speaking with Sandra Steingraber earlier this week, and, you know, she's very much involved right now working on this whole issue of carbon capture. Well, here's another thing to the to the general public. That sounds great. Oh, if we capture all that carbon dioxide that's going into the into the air, you know, then, you know, we can start to make some real progress, you know, on climate change. Well, carbon capture is a disaster. So how do you how do you deal with things like that? Yeah. So first off, I, I'm very clear to talk about industrial carbon capture. Right? right. And I think that in and of itself helps people understand when you talk about industrial carbon capture that we're talking about something different, because, of course, the Amazon and forests yeah. and things. Yeah, they that's are also, good. Right. Right. They're that's good. good. So we take natural. Part. Right. That's right. That's right. So that's why the distinction is important. But, yeah, you know, greenwashing is a problem. And so, you know, when we when we're trying to organize a grassroots movement, we do have to push back against that. Kind of one of the beautiful things about, you know, a Green Amendment is once we get it into the Constitution, even if we are not successful in organizing that mass mobilizing, you know, um, grassroots movement to take on one issue or another, if we can use that constitutional right to a clean and healthy environment and go into the courtroom and make our case with our scientists and with our lawyers and with our facts and our examples of what is happening on the grounds, we don't have to bring everybody along. We just have to bring the judges and the justices along. Not to say that that's not sometimes a high hurdle, but it is sort of, it is different. When we brought our Act 13 case, you know, the frackers were going to town, greenwashing in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania with tremendous success. But when we were able to find that best test case and go into those judges, you know, with these family members who were being so deeply affected by fracking operations and with the experts being very clear about the devastating consequences and then having this constitutional language to say, look, the government is constrained from behaving in a way that's going to inflict all of this devastating harm. It just that's what allowed us to be victorious, even though the frackers were winning the day with the legislators and the governor's office and too many of the people in the Commonwealth. So it just it's it's a new tool in the box. Doesn't mean we don't have to take on all the things that you said, but it does really help give us another strategy and approach. Um, and it also gives us another way to talk about things like carbon capture, to really talk about how carbon capture is really a devastating contribution to water pollution, to air pollution, to the climate crisis, because fundamentally it's just about advancing more fossil fuel extraction. Um, exactly. You know, so. Okay. Well, Maya, we're getting close to the end of our time here, but I did want to ask a couple of things. First of all, where is uh, the Green Amendment pending or where have you kind of got a foothold in terms of getting public interest 
And what can people do to get involved in this in this movement? So great question. Um, as I said, we've got 13 states where we have Green Amendment proposals. Some are, are further along than others. So in New York State, actually the people of New York are going to have an opportunity in November to decide whether or not they want a Green Amendment added to the New York State Bill of Rights. Um, so that's really powerful. We have Green Amendments, really powerful movements advancing in New Mexico, in Maine, in Hawaii, in New Jersey. I'm expecting great progress in those four states in the um, upcoming, in the, in, during 2022. But we also have Green Amendments proposed at, at various levels of advancement in Delaware, in West Virginia, in Vermont, in Iowa, we have interest in other states like Arizona and Michigan. So the truth is if people go to www.forthegenerations.org, not only will you see all the Green Amendment proposals that are advancing, oh, Oregon and Washington. Washington's another state to watch in the coming 2022 year. Um, I'm sure I'll keep thinking of more of the 13 as time goes on. But they are all they are all, all on forthegenerations.org. But the other thing that we do is for every state where there is a Green Amendment proposal, in order to make sure that people have the most um, applicable knowledge for their state, both in terms of facts and talking points and language and how to get, you know, how to get engaged, we have a special website for that state. So for New York, www.edu.org nygreenamendment.org. For New Mexico, it's nmgreenamendment.org. Hawaii is hi-greenamendment.org. You get the picture. The <laughs> state's two letters, greenamendment.org, and that's how you will get to what is happening in your state if there's an, an active effort, or if you go to forthegenerations.org, all the states whether there's a proposal or just building active engagement, you'll find them there as well as just tools broadly applicable. And if a Green Amendment proposal is not advancing in your state and you're really interested, give a call, get in touch. I mean, I handle this very, very personally. I take it very personally. And some of our most powerful movements like New Mexico, one person heard me on a show like this, picked up the phone and called me and we were off to the races. So you're depending on activists in those states to link up with you and get the tools from you that they need. And then they're going in to their state capitals and talking to their own legislators or to a particular committee of legislators and get this thing moving. A little bit different. I'm asking okay. them to partner up with me because okay. while this is a pretty simple idea, it's pretty complicated to implement and make yeah. sure that it doesn't get derailed. And in states where people have gone off and tried to do it on their own, like in Florida, they've messed it up and messed it up so badly that I had to become like, you know, sort of their opposition and actually stop the effort before it could advance because they had their head heads turned by greenwashing, you know, right. that had right. them do the language or the place wrong. So what I say to people yeah. is you're going to be the lead in your state, but I need to be a partner at the leadership table. So, cause I can help you. I have the knowledge. I have the experience. I have the tools um, to help you know what to say, how to say it. I will be there to help say things as well, to bring my expertise to the table um, and together 
we'll make sure that it can happen in your state. So all I say to people is please, please, please partner up with me and Green Amendments for the Generations and let's make this happen together the right way as quickly as possible. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been Maya Van Rossum, the Delaware Riverkeeper and the driving force behind the idea of a Green Amendment in every state. Right now, it's time to take a look at the Green Street Inbox, which is our segment when Patty answers questions from our listeners about common environmental issues around the house. This week, we got an email from Katie, who lives just outside Boston, who writes, My town is considering replacing our old yellow streetlights with bright LEDs that look like daylight. I have a streetlight right outside my house. I've heard that constant exposure to this new kind of light can be harmful. What should I do? Okay, well, before I can tell you what you should do, and there may actually not be any options for you, uh, I can tell you that this is happening all over the country. Uh, and it's because of the energy savings, for sure. These LEDs, they last longer, they use less electricity, and you know they come in a variety of colors, and they're more directional. They're appealing for many, many different applications, but they are a problem for our health. Even the AMA has made recommendations for addressing blue light exposure in streetlights. They are you know, really concerned about these, what they call these higher color temperature bulbs. And LEDs come in everything from you know, 1,000 to 10,000 K. That's a, that's a scale that they use, a Kelvin scale, that actually gives you the color temperature of a bulb. At the lower end of the scale, you have like 2,000 to 3,500. That is, that is very similar to the old low pressure sodium lamps that is what she has now in front of her house, Katie. Um, and so that's what you want them to replace it with. You want them to replace that old sodium bulb with a, an LED bulb that has a lower color temperature, but that's actually not what's happening. What's happening is that they're putting in these super bright daylight mimicking bulbs and it feels like you're sitting in the middle of a mall parking lot, you yeah. know, right in, right in your home. And that's crazy. So people are finding it really, really difficult. They're, you know, they're having sleep troubles. They're having all kinds of problems. But most importantly, this high intensity, this blue-white light actually suppresses melatonin production during the night, which is critical for our body's circadian rhythm. And it's a hormone that's really, really important in our bodies. Harvard publication said that study after study has linked the night shift and exposure to light at night to several types of cancer. And then in a 2017 study by Harvard, um, they found that exposure to residential outdoor light at night can contribute to invasive breast cancer risk. So. Um, what do we do? We uh, immediately get in touch with our towns and talk to them about it and just make sure that they're putting in these lower temperature bulbs. And that's really, really important. Anything from 2000 to 3500 will give you a comfortable, warm glow and not this bright, bright light, which is having an impact. Okay, so anything 3500 degrees or less would be fine. Above 3500 is not so great. That's correct. Yeah. And okay. if they do happen to put one in front of your home, you can actually even say, look, I'll buy a bulb because I don't want this in front of my home. I don't want this disturbing my sleep pattern or my circadian rhythm, which yeah. is really, really important for our health. Great. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. 
If you have an environmental question for Patty, anything from cleaning products to water filters to air fresheners to dry cleaning to paint to carpeting, baby furniture, wireless radiation, whatever it is, drop us a line at greenstreetradio.com. And if you missed any part of today's program, you can always catch it again on our website, www.greenstreetradio.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can also follow us on Facebook at Green Street Radio. In case you missed it, last week our guest was scientist, author, and activist Dr. Sandra Steingraber, and the show was about the oil industry's bizarre plan to address climate change by capturing some of the carbon dioxide they're creating, transporting it across the country in special giant pipelines, and then forcing it into the ground under high pressure to try to squeeze out a little more oil from their depleted oil fields. That's the oil industry's plan to capture carbon, and they're even convincing the government to help fund it, since, you know, the oil industry doesn't really have any money. Anyway, catch the show on GreenStreetRadio.com, and make sure you get on the mailing list so you know about all our upcoming shows. That's going to do it for our show today. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well. See you next time.